Saul Lafreund is the co-founder and co-executive director of the Death Penalty Project, a London-based NGO providing free legal representation and assistance to individuals facing the death penalty and, um, and other vulnerable prisoners. Saul has dedicated his career to representing prisoners facing the death penalty in criminal and constitutional proceedings and also before international tribunals and courts. He is a leading authority on capital punishment and international human rights law and has published and lectured extensively on these topics. In 2000, he was awarded an MBE for services to international human rights. In 2016, he was appointed as a visiting professor of law at the University of Reading, where he has been awarded an honorary degree of Doctors of Law. We will, I'm sure, hear more from Saul about his interesting career shortly. But for now, welcome Saul to the Passion Factor Pursuing a Career in Human Rights. Thank you, Vicky. So the first question that I ask all of the, the guests on this show is, is where did it all start for you? What kind of motivated you to work in the human rights field? Well, it's quite a difficult question to answer. Um, I, I, I think there are sort of family reasons and the history of my family being um, refugees originally that maybe um, that jolted my subconscious um, as I grew up. Um, traveling as well. Um, I took a gap year, took lots of gap years actually, but I took a couple of gap years and um, got out of my comfort zone um, and saw how other people lived around the world that were less fortunate than myself. And I think that also sparked something in me. But at that stage, I had no idea that I'd um, take up or be interested in human rights law. So where it all began was um, at university. I was an undergraduate. I um, did an LLB at the University of Reading. Um, I had no real idea that I wanted to be a lawyer, um, but I wasn't really sure what to study. So um, my parents and myself thought law wouldn't be a bad um, way to go. And um, I, I think if you were to speak to my um, my teachers back at university, I was really wasn't the, the greatest um, law student. I sort of middled it, um, was interested in lots of other things. But what really sparked my interest was um, I took an option in international human rights law. And um, from, from that day on, I sort of fell in love with the subject and I sort of realised that um, law was actually quite useful and um, it could go a long way to helping people in particularly um, difficult situations. And um, I had a professor and they always say that there's always one teacher um, somewhere along the line that sparks your interest. And this was Professor Sandy Gandhi at the University of Reading who taught uh, quite an original course back in those days in the protection, international protection of human rights. And his course really focused on the, I mean, it covered everything, but it, it was very much focused on the United Nations human rights system. And I found that particularly interesting looking at how the UN human rights system operated um, and looking at cases under the optional protocol to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And, these were cases determined by the Human Rights Committee. And in those days, a lot of these cases were from Latin America. They were to do with disappearances on a, on a grand scale. Um, and I found all of this um, area of law particularly fascinating. So I think that really sparked my, my interest was taking that course um, and getting to grips with the subject matter. Yeah, I think for me, I also did a law degree and it only really spoke to me when I could do international law and, and penology, the study of crime at the end of my degree. I didn't particularly care for trusts and things like this. <laughs> I can hear you. I relate exactly. to that, definitely. Right. Um, and what 
has been your own career path to date to, to get to, to where you are now doing such sort of important and, and meaningful work? Well, it, it was quite accidental. And um, I suppose that there really wasn't um, what you could term as a sort of human rights industry back in the day. I mean, I'm 53 now, so we're talking over 30 years ago. And um, there weren't that many law firms that had dedicated human rights departments or that were doing a huge amount of pro bono work. So there wasn't this sort of huge job market. Um, I wouldn't say it's huge now, but um, there was, you know, looking for a job in human rights was, was quite tricky in those days. So when I um, graduated, I decided that um, along with Professor Sandy Gandhi, um, his strong suggestion was that I should look to do a postgraduate degree in human rights law. And I was really keen to do that, to learn more about the subject. I think as an LLB option, you kind of skim the surface of a subject. You really, you know, you, you, you do as much as you can do, um, but it's one of a number of subjects. And um, so I, I went to London University um, I took the LLM, which in those days was intercollegiate at London. So I was a UCL student, but it enabled me to choose courses from any of the London colleges. Uh, there were over 100 courses I could choose. And um, um, so international protection of human rights, but also the domestic protection of human rights. Um, and a course in law and development that I did at the School of Oriental, at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. So I did that course part-time over two years, but the government paid for um, your fees in those days, but they didn't pay for postgraduate fees. So I sort of jobbed um, and studied. So I did that, that um, LLM over two years. So that, that was the next stage in my career. But at that stage, I still really didn't know what I'd end up doing. Um, and my strong inclination in those days was to go down a sort of academic route and I was looking for jobs in academia. And the first thing that I did was to, after I um, finished the LLM course was to take on a part-time um, teaching job at SOAS. So I stayed at SOAS and was doing teaching courses, mostly what other people didn't want to teach, I suppose. So I was doing a bit of crime, a bit of um, taught, um, a bit of jurisprudence. Um, and I was, I was working at, at SOAS. And then the, the next thing that happened, and this was all very accidental, I was looking for, at the same time, I had my eye on the job market for jobs in human rights, and really it was looking at big international organisations, so UNICEF or Amnesty International, um, or the UN human rights system itself, but there really weren't many jobs available. Um, so I, I, I was quite confused as to what I would do next. And then... Um, what happened was there was a, a job advert in, um, in the Guardian jobs and it was to work, it was a job working at a small London law firm called Simons, Muirhead and Burton um, to assist um, one of the partners working on pro bono death penalty cases. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. And I was intrigued because I thought, well, how can that be? We haven't had the death penalty in the United Kingdom since um, the mid-1960s. So what is this London law firm doing dabbling in death penalty work? Um, and I looked into it and I, it didn't take me long to work out that it was taking cases to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London. And um, I can talk more about the Privy Council because it's such an odd tribunal. Um, but the firm was taking Caribbean cases, death row cases to the Privy Council um, on appeals. Um, so I applied for the job. Um, I had an interview with the then senior partner, Bernard Simons, 
um, who was in charge of um, the firm's death penalty cases. It was something that he felt very passionate about and he did on the side. And I later learned that the firm had actually been involved in this work since the 1970s. So it was very much part of the fabric of, of, of the firm. It was a very liberal practice, still is. Um, so I applied for the job. It was part-time, three days a week. Uh, managed to find a way to combine it with continuing to teach part-time and that was the beginning. So taking that job at Simon's Muir Head and Burton. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. That's a really interesting route and, and, and finding your way to, to the work that you do now. Um, I wanted to kind of have a, ask you a few questions around sort of working uh, and breaking into the sector, because as you know, this podcast is for, for young professionals who are looking to take those first mm-hmm. steps in the human rights world. Um, and perhaps to come back to something that you mentioned there about the further study um, and the masters. And we know now that many human rights employers, be it international organizations, international NGOs, are asking for some sort of advanced degree in human rights or public international law. Um, and it's something that I get asked a lot by, by young professionals that should I be going on to do a master's? Um, so it'd be great to hear from you, your views on that. And also, when is the right time to do the master's? Is it straight after you've done an undergraduate bit of time working and coming back to it? So. Well, it's kind of a difficult question because I can only speak from my own experience. And as I, as I mentioned, I went straight from doing the LLB to doing the LLM. Um, I, did, I did take a, a year, year off in between traveling again, but um, essentially it was a, a straight it was a straight route to do the LLM. So um, it, it was really out of interest. I mean, I was I was interested in the subject and um, I, I didn't really take the LLM because I thought it would further my career in human rights. It was because I was so interested in the subject that I wanted to learn more about it. So I think there are two things really. One is um, it's very interesting to, to do a postgraduate degree and to get into a subject in depth and really understand it. So I think that that's beneficial to oneself, but it's also got to be beneficial um, when you go out to the job market because you're going to know the subject very, very well. So I, I, I don't see a real downside in doing a postgraduate degree. Um, I don't think there is a downside. I think individual circumstances will dictate whether you Um, want to do it straight after you've done an undergraduate degree or whether um, you want to get into the job market first. Um, I think it's horses for courses on that one. I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. Um, But I I would strongly, I mean, I do get asked this question quite a lot by um, young law students, should I do a postgraduate degree? Um, And I can only say that from my experience, it was hugely beneficial in better understanding the subject. Um, so I don't see a downside in doing it. Um, I think employers would look favourably um, on people who have a postgraduate degree, but it's not a necessity either. So um, you can also learn about human rights law when you're working. Um, so if you are working in the human rights field, you'll learn that way. Um, but I, I, I suppose many people who come to our organisation now um, they, it seems that the majority have studied um, human rights law at postgraduate level. So I, I think, and it's not, a, it's not an automatic requirement for us. Um, we don't um, demand that people have a postgraduate degree, um, but I suppose we do look on it favourably if somebody has that base understanding um, of the human rights mechanisms and how they operate. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, I, I think increasingly I'm seeing young professionals who who are thinking about the master's route and seeing it as an... an 
that's what the, the interest factors you say there, but more that it is um, required by or asked by, by quite a lot of organisations now, um, even to the degree where an internship at the UN now they're asking for a master's. So it's, <laughs> this is what... Okay. UN's maybe, maybe you don't need it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so thinking about the work that you do um, in, 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 in the Death Penalty Project, what skills and qualities do you think you need to work in the human rights field? Well, um, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think I think you 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 need perseverance. Um, that's for sure. That would agree. Um, yeah. So, I mean, our our story was very organic, and um, so you know, just just so the listeners understand, I mean, I took that job thirty years ago at Simon's Muirhead and Burton, and. Um, the Death Penalty Project is based at Simon's Muirhead and Burton, so I've never really left. I mean, the organisation has grown over that time um, and has changed, and we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, in terms of the type of work that we do and how we do it. Um, but essentially, I'm in the same workplace um, that I've been for 30 years. Um, so I think, I think you have to have a long-term view. I think that with um, lots of areas of law, you're not going to change uh, the world in five minutes, it doesn't happen. Mm. Um, so when you measure success and you look back, um, and hopefully people do have success in their careers in human rights, um, and thankfully we we would say that we have been successful um, in some areas, um, you, you have to measure success over a longer period of time. So you have, you have to have a stickability um, that you're going to come in. You may do a very interesting case right at the beginning, um, but I think to really change hearts and minds and people's mindsets and change conversations around human rights. It's very complicated. Um, I think you have to be work at it for quite a long time. Um, so that's our experience anyway, um, in the field where we work. The death penalty is quite a difficult area for lots of different reasons. But um, I think um, taking the long route um, is important. I think as well, when you work internationally, um, you have to be very careful because um, you, you're often working in other countries, in third countries. It's not your country. It's not necessarily your human rights issue. Um, so diplomacy is a skill um, that we're not necessarily taught, but one has to realise that um, you have to build partnerships. You have to, um, you know, you have to be seen not as an... It depends which type of human rights you want to work in. I mean... Um, we don't see ourselves as campaigners or agitators because we're lawyers. So ultimately use the law um, to determine the issues that we feel need to be determined. And we also use a lot of research and academic instruments to try to change conversations around the death penalty. Um, but it's not just my opinion um, mm. that's going to change anyone else's opinion. So it's a question of um, a being patient and also um, being sensitive to other countries' situations and also that there are two sides to every conversation um, and one has to understand that listening is very much as, as important, if not more important than talking. Um, so I think these are sort of subtle skills um, that, that we have deployed um, or learned to deploy um, over the years and um, I think that it's testament to the fact that we've been doing it for 30 years um, means that we must be doing something right um, in terms of the techniques that we employ. 
Um, so it is a it is a complex area, um, human rights law, and you know human rights law is so broad as well. So it depends which area of human rights law you're working in. So um, there is definitely room for making a lot of noise and campaigning, and different organisations have different methods as well. So there's no one method either. Um, but the method that we use um, is that we um, ultimately we use the law to talk. Um, so. Um, we believe that we're right in what we're doing, um, but ultimately it's going to be the judges um, that are going to be the mouthpiece in terms of the decisions that they make in individual cases um, that's going to you know, develop the law um, and hopefully change situations. But it takes a long time um, and one has to handle things quite carefully. Yeah, I like that that notion concept of stickability because for me it's all about the small wins, you know, these incremental wins that you have along the way uh, because the the, the big issues, as you say, are not going to sort of be resolved overnight. It just doesn't happen in our world, sadly. Right. Um, sort of thinking in about our young professionals and, and as they start out, um, and you mentioned it before there that you have many applications for positions um, at the Death Penalty Project. So you will have seen many CVs pass your desk. Um, what are your thoughts about what makes a good quote unquote human rights CV? What, what do you like to see on a CV that makes it stand out or shine when there are so many great kind of candidates out there sort of um, trying to, to start in this sector? Uh, re- recruitment is, is impossibly difficult. Um, you know, we, we get a very high um, calibre of people applying to work for us. And um, ultimately, um, it really boils down to um, the interview uh, much more than what people write on paper, ultimately. I mean, I, I like to get behind the paper, but ultimately you've got to select um, through the paper exercise, so there's no way around it. So I think that um, when people are writing cover letters and CVs, I mean, I think accuracy, um, you know, really basic stuff actually matters. So if people are writing cover letters and there are spelling mistakes and the grammar's not good, um, that is not a good sign. That's not going to help when one wants a career in law where it's all about detail um, and accuracy and positionality. So I think that um, people should be very careful, number one, to get the basics right, um, because sometimes people um, you know, who may well be good candidates, sometimes they um, do make mistakes in cover letters and CVs, and that really spoils their application because they're not really going to get beyond to the next stage. So... Um, I think I think somebody um, that expresses a clarity um, about why they want to work in the field um, is able to um, show that they have some grasp. I mean, we're not asking people to um, know everything about um, the field, um, but to have some grasp on what the organisation does. So to make sure that you research um, the organisation, have an understanding of the history of the organisation and potentially the direction of travel of that organisation would be very helpful um, and to have some relevant experience um, in the field. But um, none of these things are essential. And I think that um, it's a very difficult question to answer to say, which is the cover letter and CV that gets the job? Because I think they come in all different shapes and sizes. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to put anybody off. I think everybody should keep, you know, should try and keep trying. Um, But I I, I do think that accuracy, don't ramble for too long. Um, People, you know, if you think about the person recruiting, um, we're all very busy. Um, We get a lot of applications. So something's got to stand out on the page, um, whatever that may be. 
Um, so it's a bit of a woolly answer, Vicky, because I, I, it is a very difficult process, recruitment. And um, I, I'd be very interested to hear what other people say about what um, what ticks their boxes when they come to recruiting, because it is it is very, very difficult. But mm-hmm. yeah, some experience, um, some qualifications in the field um, and to express a desire as to why somebody really wants to work in that field um, with some knowledge about the organisation um, would be, you know, the benchmark for a good application. That's really helpful. And when you think that the average employer looks at a CV for about seven seconds or something, which is what I read, you know, you, as you say, something's got to really stand out. And another human rights professional said to me, there's got to be a quote, unquote, an X factor or something that stands out on, on paper yeah. there. So, um, but it's something that I, I get asked a lot by young professionals and I try and, you know, to, to give them a little bit of a steer on that. But as you say, each one will come in its own different shape and way. And picking up on on one point you mentioned there about the experience, the work experience, I mean, the value of undertaking some sort of pro bono or voluntary um, opportunities as a first step, ideally, you know, we want people to to be paid for their work there, but if they can't find those paid opportunities, what's your view about undertaking these pro bono opportunities? um... Well, I mean... I mean, we provide now paid internships because we feel that it would not, it's just not right to um, take somebody um, on board without, um, without um, providing with some recompense for their time and their work. So uh, I wouldn't even call it a salary necessarily, but um, we do provide people with some kind of stipend for, mm-hmm. for coming to work at the Death County Project, even if it's on a short basis. Um, I think it's invaluable. Um, I think that um, I, I wouldn't suggest that people should spend two years just doing banks of internships. Um, but I, I do think that um, working in an organisation, seeing how people work, um, even shadowing people as they're working um, is a very valuable um, opportunity. Um, so I think I think there are good internships and bad internships as well. Um, so I think just being sort of left in a corner um, sorting out boxes is not going to help anybody um, ultimately. So it's about people seeing what um, working life is like. You know what is you know a real Monday in a human rights organisation. Um, and I think you know it's the understanding that it's not all um, glorious litigation. Um, there's a lot of hard graft that goes with it, like any job. Um, so I do. I, I'm 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 quite strong in reminding people that. What we do, we run an organisation. Um, we have governance, we have finance, we have what every other organisation in the world has um, to get through the year. Um, we have to deal with audits, um, we have to recruit, um, we have to manage our team. I mean, there's um, a lot that goes into running a human rights organisation. It's not just the ultimately the, the help that we provide to the people that um, we serve. It's, um, there's a lot that goes into it. So I think the experience of seeing the organisation around is, is really important and really helpful. But obviously, um, we want people to be able to come to court with us and to see the cases in motion, to meet the brilliant barristers that we instruct that argue our cases, um, and, you know, to, to, to follow the process as much as they can. But I, I, I think that that is invaluable and um, I I would say that um, doing some kind of work experience um, preferably paid but if if it's not possible to find a paid internship and it's a summer scheme or um, it can only be helpful ultimately. Yeah I think there's definitely a move now certainly in um, 
non-governmental sector and, and, and international organizations to, to have paid internships because you know, there is no reason why young professionals should not be paid and valued for, for the work that they do absolutely and there's big movement for that um, and the sort of final question on um, this little section is around sort of the importance of networking and we know that's important in lots of different areas um, professional areas and I think equally in, in the human rights field and I suppose perhaps your, your own experience of networking, how it's helped you, but also any advice and guidance that you can offer to young professionals about networking who might feel a little bit sort of shy to come forward and, and it's a little bit counterintuitive to, for them to do it. But yeah, be great. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, it can only help. And, and I can give an example. So at the moment, um, that person remained nameless, but we have a, an intern with us at the moment. Um, she spent um, um, two or three weeks working with the organization and then she was working on a case. She met the barrister and he said, oh, I could do with some help. Um, and that intern is now in the barrister's chambers, working in the barrister's chambers. Okay. Um, we're very happy with that. Um, and, you know, not only has she been able to get the experience and um, of working in our organization and meeting some of the people we directly work with, but um, she's meeting our connections and I think it's a brilliant internship for her and she's now at Chambers and meeting other barristers and other people in the field. Um, so, you know, maybe that's a little bit random because it doesn't always happen like that, but I think that type of internship, um, I, think, I think the benefits of that particular internship will be massive for that person because they will have met so many different people. And networking helps because um, being, you know, the old saying of being in the right place at the right time, um, really does make a difference um, and things can happen. Um, things don't happen when you're stuck at home. Things happen when you are out in the field, when you're meeting people, um, you never know what opportunities arise. Um, so it's a bit of luck and chance, but um, you increase the chances of, of things happening when you are um, in the company of people working in the field. So yeah, it's really important to get out and about. And um, I, I, I can give you a really good example, actually. So I, I recently returned from the Commonwealth Law Conference, which is held every few years. Um, and there was a student who'd made the, it was a great initiative. Um, I mean, he'd, he'd managed to self-fund it. I mean, obviously the conference organisers um, didn't charge him a fee for attending because it's normally expensive to attend these kind of professional conferences. Um, but he had the courage to turn up and I met him and I said, well, um, who do you work for? And he says, I don't, I'm a law student, um, but I wanted to come out. And, um, and he met, um, it was a small conference because of COVID. So there weren't thousands of delegates there, which would have been quite intimidating, a couple of hundred people. And he was there for four or five days and he must have met everybody and yeah. um, spoken to everybody. So that's a, a really good example of somebody um, coming out of their comfort zone, um, really good initiative. And um, I'm sure that um, that individual will benefit massively from all of the connections that have been made. Um, because then you find that person's following you on Twitter or has, uh, has joined you on LinkedIn or through various social media channels. Um, and it was, it was really quite remarkable, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm always encouraging young professionals to kind of get on LinkedIn and use that, you know, the power that LinkedIn has because it can connect you to really fantastic people working in the sector and you're not asking them for a job. You may be asking for half an hour of their time just to find out about what they do and where and how you might be able to support their work. So 
um, and particularly now when perhaps we're still at home, so to speak, um, that, that there's a lot of power and value in that, but nothing better than actually trying to get out there and, and be, be in the room, so to speak, because it makes all the, all the difference. Um, absolutely. Um, so moving on to sort of a little bit around the day-to-day -day life of a human rights professional. Um, so I would ask you to sort of just, just describe a typical day, I suppose there's no typical day, um, in the life of, you know, a co-director of the Death Penalty Project. Um, yeah. Well, um, every day is different. Um, so, you know, the range of work, I mean, if it's a court day, I mean, I'll give you a few different days. I think it might be quite difficult to give you one day. I mean, um, so yesterday was just internal meetings. I mean, uh, that's all I'm going to say. I mean, it wasn't um, riveting um, or particularly exciting and we definitely didn't change the world, but it was really helpful for our team to have uh, a range of sort of strategy meetings and brainstorming meetings. So that's a day um, that happens in an organisation. You have to actually, um, when you're doing something, um, when you're litigating and thinking about um, not what you're doing today, but what you need to be doing tomorrow and in the future, you need to stop and think. So um, some days it's actually trying to find the space to think um, and to think about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and maybe how you could do it a little bit better. So I think that's um, something that we're trying to get more into our days um, because we're all so busy. Um, so, but I, I can take a day like today so today, um, early doors, um, I have just was on a conference call with um, a lawyer in Bangladesh. Um, this is a case of a British national who's um, been sentenced to death in Bangladesh and his appeal is pending. Um, he's a British national, so um, somebody from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office was on the call as well um, because it's a consular case. Um, so we have a, these cases are very interesting. We have um, working relationships with a local lawyer, with the consular department in London, um, with the High Commission in Dakar, the British High Commission, because there are consular officers on the ground um, who will go and visit the said individual, and also this individual sister who is based in Birmingham. So that was the start of the day very early this morning. We all jumped on a call. Um, a, we wanted to inform the family um, of the current status of the case. Um, secondly, find out from the lawyer um, how he was getting around COVID restrictions in terms of seeing the client, um, how the Foreign Office could may be able to help to facilitate better legal visits um, because of, as I said, because of COVID restrictions and for ourselves to talk about certain aspects of the appeal. So that was the first thing that um, I was doing today. The next thing I did was to speak to again quite early um so i got somebody out of bed quite early this morning in jamaica because time difference were the other way um but we have a case coming up to the privy council in london um these are four men who have been convicted of murder and their appeal is pending um they've already had an appeal to the court appeal of jamaica and that's pending um and this is very much about procedural things about what documents should be contained in the record of appeal um, very loyally things, um, but necessary to move the case from um, to the next stage because the case had kind of got stuck somewhere um, in terms of process. So we're trying to unstick the process. Um, I was then on the phone to uh, the sisters the, that represent the state in that case um, to make sure that we all agreed on the next steps forward. So um, what's interesting in litigation in death penalty cases is you have an opponent. 
Um, and whatever one feels about the subject matter, um, one has to be able to communicate well, um, especially as lawyers, um, with your opponent. Um, and it's better to get on with your opponent than not, mm-hmm. um, even in adversarial litigation. And um, so that was the next um, job. Um, the other two things that I've been up to today is one is that we are about to publish a very interesting piece of work, which is an empirical study of the views of litigators, the attitudes of, sorry, legislators in Taiwan on capital punishment. Um, So on this, we've partnered with the University of Oxford and a Taiwanese university, and we have finished the study. We're just finalizing the report. Um, so dealing with some outstanding questions so we can sign off on the report and get it published and then launch it and think around events um, to disseminate the findings of this particular study. Um, so that was the next thing i done in my day. Um, and then the final thing I've done is communicating with some colleagues in India. Um, they're producing some training for um, judges on mental health law Um, and capital punishment and they've been chasing me because I've got to do some video recordings for them (laughs) for the session (laughs) that I'm doing so it was uh, that's that's today so it's very varied Um, some of its litigation some of its research and some of its training Um, so a very interesting day so far yeah absolutely and and I think as you said no real typical day and you never quite know what's going to kind of come in your inbox and you might have to sort of shift and change but it's really interesting for people just to hear what what your day could be and and the the variety and depth of work that you do in really interesting cases um and it kind of brings me on to sort of thinking or asking you to sort of think about your career and what have been perhaps the highlights or the highlight of your career to date and given the, the vast array of work that you've done and such important work that you're doing well, um, apart from speaking to you today, Vicky, which is obviously one of the highlights, of course. Um, of course. Um, so, the highlights. Um, there are too many to mention, actually. Um, so, I can only pick a few. I suppose the um, winding right the way back to the beginning of my um, career um, working at the Death Penalty Project, or before it was called the Death Penalty Project, when we were a department in Simon's Mead Burton. It was bringing a a huge piece of litigation to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council um, for two men who'd been on death row for 14 and a half years in Jamaica. And this case was called Pratt & Morgan. Um, And we brought a constitutional appeal on behalf of two Jamaican death row prisoners, Earl Pratt and Ivor Morgan, who'd had the most awful time. They'd both faced three execution warrants, um, which means they come within minutes of, of being executed. Um, and they'd received stays of execution on three occasions. And they'd also endured nearly 15 years in deplorable prison conditions um, under sentence of death. So, and I spent a lot of time in Jamaica with them. So I knew very well um, the psychological impact it had had on both of these um, people um, and also their families, actually. And we challenged the amount of time um, that we said it was legitimate to keep somebody on death row. I mean, clearly, we don't believe any time is legitimate, but um, according to the law, um, once you're sentenced to death, then you are kept on death row pending appeals um, until the fateful day that the government um, go ahead um, with your execution. So we, we, we felt that to keep somebody on death row for that long, which is 
known through the states and you know those that work in the field as the death row phenomenon the idea of the anxiety of the torture basically the psychological torture of, of spending decades um, under sentence of death and there had been some jurisprudence out of the European Court of Human Rights um, saying that um, the death row phenomenon violated the European Convention that was an extradition case and it was to do with the German national that the um, the European Court said it would violate the European Convention to extradite somebody to face um, that um, ordeal. Um, and we ran a similar case before the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. And the, it had been tried before um, in 1981, and the Privy Council dismissed that particular case. So we had another go for Earl Pratt and Ivor Morgan. And anyway, we, we were successful, and the Privy Council held that um, that was unconstitutional, um, the concept of delay was inhuman, um, and they set a, a target of five years, and they said after five years on death row, the presumption is it amounts to inhuman degrading treatment, torture, effectively. Um, but the knock-on effect of that case was hundreds of people were removed from death row throughout the region, and um, it was sort of realising the power um, of the law, because in one case, we literally... Um, as I say, 400 people had their death sentences commuted. Um, and that decision of the Privy Council was then applied in other countries around the world, Zimbabwe in particular. So um, that was obviously a fantastic day. And it was the first time that I'd been involved in constitutional litigation um, on that scale. So public interest litigation where you're, you're challenging the system. You're not representing just an individual. Um, is, is, has this person had a fair trial? Um, this was challenging the system. And we realised that incrementally we would be able to make other challenges to the system in due course by bringing um, strategic litigation. So that was an amazing time. Um, and that was a long time ago. Um, and then I suppose just winding forward, I mean, there are so many examples. I mean, um, you know, meeting people who we've assisted, um, who are no longer in prison, have families and they have work and um, they have freedom. Um, that is um, something you can't really put into words when you meet people a number of years after you've successfully won a case. Um, but I suppose the most recent example of something that we worked on was in Sierra Leone. So Sierra Leone um, became the 110th country to abolish the death penalty on the 23rd of July this year. Um, and we've worked really hard with fantastic, uh, a fantastic array of different people. I mean, it's not something we could have ever done on our own, um, and, and, and we didn't. Um, but we worked very closely with a local NGO called Advocate, and we've worked with them for nearly 10 years, testing um, women on death row in Sierra Leone. And um, together we developed a strategy. We were assisted by the diplomatic community, um, we created a network, basically a very strong national lobby, including the Sierra Leone Bar Association. Um, and we managed to convince um, politicians, ultimately, um, that they needed to um, end capital punishment in Sierra Leone for a whole host of reasons, um, which I don't need to go into, but it was a human rights-based um, argument that the death penalty um, simply violated human rights and was unsustainable. Um, and I think that's a position that most of the world have adopted today. Um, but to actually convince parliamentarians to, um, to, to go forwards with this um, and to pass legislation to abolish the death penalty um, was quite remarkable. And um, on that day, I went to work in the morning and there were 90 prisoners on death row. 
Um, and I came home in the evening and there was nobody on death row mm. and there will never be anybody on death row again in Sierra Leone. So that was, um, that was a remarkable day. Um, and, you know, again, as I said, it links to something I said earlier. We've been working on the issue in Sierra Leone for, for a decade, if not longer, um, with our local partner. So um, things take time, but uh, the end result was fantastic. Um, and, you know, it doesn't stop there because we hope that the, the, it'll create some regional impetus and that other countries in West Africa will realise that abolition of the death penalty, um, I suppose, is the litmus test for a country's respect and regard for human rights um, and that other countries in West Africa will follow suit and that you may see a domino effect and more countries abolishing the death penalty in Africa. So, um, they're just two, you know, examples, one in the Caribbean and one in Africa um, of great days at work. Absolutely. And, and, it, and it really kind of puts all the efforts and what you do into, into perspective when you see change like that and deep palpable change for the better. So um, absolutely, it's, it's really, really important. Um, and I suppose the kind of antidote is to that is, have you faced any setbacks and challenges in your career? <laughs> Everybody does. Um, yeah. That's for sure. Um, um, there, you know, so many. I mean, uh, not quite as many setbacks as successes, I think. But um, there are always setbacks. Um, I can losing cases. Um, you don't just win cases. I mean, that's for sure. We don't choose our clients. I mean, they choose us. Um, so we, we don't just say, "Well, we're going to take this case because it's a winning case." Um, so often we have cases that are unwinnable um, and that is very difficult. So um, telling somebody who's facing the death penalty that you really don't think they've got a very strong case to go to court um, or we really can't conceive of any viable grounds of appeal um, is not a conversation one has lightly with somebody. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will be executed um, because there are other things that we can do. Um, but um, in, in terms of um, diplomacy or policy work or advocacy, um, so thankfully very few people under our watch have actually been executed over the last three decades. Um, but it's still not an easy conversation to have with people um, or when cases are lost and you have to inform them, them of the outcome. Um, that doesn't get any easier um, on 30 years. So. Um, I don't think there's any training that one can have. Um, you don't get better at that, that's for sure. Um, it's always a difficult conversation. So um, that's the side of work that, that's very difficult. Um, on a personal level, when I started, um, I mentioned that I, I was interviewed and employed by Bernard Simons at the firm, and he was one of the founding senior partners. And tragically, Bernard died after I'd been very suddenly, very young, after I'd been there for nine months. Um, so that was a challenge because um, suddenly... I had 30 Caribbean death row cases and I didn't have a boss and I was 23 and I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, so it was either sink or swim pretty much. And the practice being the practice um, just said, you carry on, you know, we have confidence that you'll be fine. You carry on. But it was very difficult and very challenging um, as was um, going out to Jamaica, spending a month visiting clients on death row um, having never been in any environment like that. I mean, I think, you know, visiting a prison is very difficult if you've never been in a prison, but um, to visit prisoners on death row in a prison that's, um, you know, that breaks most uh, human rights standards in terms of minimum standards for the treatment of prisoners um, was an eye-opener um, and quite harrowing. Yeah. So um, these are all 
um, the realities of why we do what we do, actually. Um, but it doesn't come easy, necessarily. Um, but it motivates, for sure. Um, and as an American lawyer once said, you know, to do this work, sometimes you need fire in your belly. Um, now, it's not, that's not a term, phrase that I would use, but um, sometimes you do. Um, you can never be complacent about what you do. Um, that every day you need to wake up and it's a new day. And um, yeah, I mean, I suppose the other thing is that I'm aware that, um, you know, I go home to my, you know, comfortable life, um, but the people I assist are not living a comfortable life. So you have to remind yourself all the time of why you do this. And, um, you know, I, I suppose another um, very prominent message from... Um, Brian Stevenson, who's uh, an amazing lawyer out of Alabama, um, who most people will know through the film Just Mercy, because um, that's his story and his book that became a, the Hollywood film. Um, was he always said, you've got to get proximate to the problem to understand it. Um, and that is so true that um, to do human rights work, you can't do it from an ivory tower. Um, you've got to get your your hands dirty. So if you're doing detention work and immigration work, you need to go to Dover. You need to go into immigration centres. You need to understand what um, people are going through. And if you're doing death penalty work, you've got to visit your clients and understand um, their situations as well. Because, you know, it is human is the key word, human rights work. And it's about human beings, ultimately. And a lot of the work we do is to try to humanise um, a lot of the people we work with have, you know, um, the way they're spoken about and the rhetoric around certain issues, people lose their humanity. Um, part of our job is to give them their humanity back. Um, and even if it's to give them their day in court, um, then it's worthwhile. So the, the good days definitely outshine the bad days. Um, but um, it's not for the faint hearted doing this type of work. Um, but I think it's, a, it's also a privilege to do this work um, because ultimately, um, we are able to make a difference, not all the time, but a lot of the time to, to people's lives. So um, it's a very good reason to get out of bed in the morning. Absolutely, and keeps you going, but you're right. And then it really brings me on very neatly to kind of the, the, the last question I have there, that this work is confronting for us as human rights professionals, what the places that we go, the people that we see, the testimonies that we hear. And there's a lot of talk now around self-care amongst human rights professionals, be it lawyers, be it companions there. Um, and something that I think young professionals really need to be aware of at an early stage that this work will impact you in a very profound way. So I suppose it's asking, you know, what, what sort of self-care tools can you deploy uh, at, at all stages of your career there? But how can we look after ourselves to do the work well? Because that's what we want to do ultimately at the end of the day. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think, I think if you start off from the understanding that the work needs to make you feel uncomfortable, I think, I think, you know, uncomfortability around the work is, is part of it. You know, you're not going to feel comfortable doing this work. So that's a realisation. So anybody doing the work that feels uncomfortable um, or upset um, about some of the issues they're confronting, that's normal, right? So um, we should feel that way. Um, the question is a balance, right? So um, to make sure that um, you understand why you feel uncomfortable um, but also to understand that what you're doing um, is trying to make a difference. And that, um, so yeah, self-care is really important. Everybody's very different about it. And I, I, I think that um, I've had a lot of conversations with myself 
Uh, not too many, Vicky, um, that it's gone the other side, but enough conversations with myself about why I do it and mm. whether um, I need to stop um, for a bit, to, to breathe, to pause, um, you know, and I, I, I have my tools um, to manage situations, but you do develop tools, um, whether that's um, spending time with your family or your friends, um, not um, being on... Um, on emails 24 seven, um, mm. having time out, um, taking breaks. Um, there are lots of different techniques that one needs to employ. And I think this day and age of communication makes that quite difficult for people and it makes it quite difficult for young people. So I think um, creating your own sort of limits and barriers and boundaries is really, really important. And I think they're very blurred lines now. And just to explain it, I mean, when I started, there was no internet. I mean, people won't understand what that means. But, I mean, it was literally faxes in the days when I began and telephone calls. And um, I'd go on a, on a work trip and I'd come back and I'd have a, a pile of messages. Um, someone had written saying, you know, Mr. X called you, call them back. Um, so you call them back. Now you go for a week and you, you've got a thousand emails. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are different pressures um, it's not just the pressure of the work that you do, it's your work environment that creates pressures as well. So it's managing all of those things is really, really important. And uh, especially for young people, I mean, we constantly tell people in our place of work that they, you know, if somebody says to me, oh, I worked on the weekend, there are times when people do have to work on the weekend if we've got a case on a Monday, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't expect people to work on the weekend. So if somebody tells me they worked on the weekend when, I, when there wasn't a need, um, that's not a good thing. Um, you know, I would much rather that person didn't work on the weekend, didn't look at emails on the weekend, um, and came to work feeling refreshed and rested. Um, and, you know, so it's really important just to manage. And, you know, everyone's different. But um, I think, you know, it's, it's a complicated world that we live in, where there's information coming at you all the time. Um, and that, that is exa- it can be very exhausting for people. Um, so I think, you know, boundaries are really important and um, to be a rounded individual, um, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull guy, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's true um, and so necessary in the work that we do um, is that you need to find time out um, from it um, and some balance ultimately. Yeah, no, it's so important. And it's something that I impress upon young professionals saying that, you know, this work is hard, it's tough. You need to have that network around you and that support around you. So we're drawing to the end of our conversation here. Um, and I suppose really it's just if people have listened to the conversation and say, yes, I still want to work in human rights. It's still where my heart lies. What are your sort of final pearls of wisdom, I suppose, and sort of, yeah, to, to the audience who would like to do the work? Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, you know, I've, I, I've loved, um, you know, not every minute because um, it's impossible to love every minute of anything. Um, but on balance, it's just been fantastic. It's uh, never changing. Um, you know, we're, we're part of a, an evolving world. Um, and in a way, because we're um, at the forefront of the law um, and taking cases to high tribunals, we're changing the law and developing the law and changing the way people think about things. So um, I think it's a, it's a fantastic area to work in. Um, I think that it's, um, you know, I think now, now there are more opportunities than, than, than when I started, um, which is a good thing. 
Um, so I think that human rights is very, very broad. Um, you don't have to just be a human rights lawyer. Uh, human rights law seeps into all areas of law, whether it's family law, um, privacy, um, or you know, all areas of law, there are human rights elements to it. So I wouldn't say that you just have to be a human rights lawyer, whatever that means. Um, I think that um, you can pick up in any area of law and you'll find human rights aspects that need working on. Um, so my words of wisdom would be um, not to pigeonhole yourself too early in your career um, to keep all options open. Um, but if you are interested in human rights, th th there will be, there, there will be, and there can be opportunities in many different, you know, way, ways and shapes. Really, um, there's no one direction of travel ultimately. Absolutely, it cuts through everything. So, thank you so very much for being a guest here. And, and if people want to just find out more about you, the organisation, what's the best way? Um, it, just to go on our website, I think, that would be the, the first port of call, which is www.deathpentyproject.org. Um, and lots of the things that I've mentioned in terms of some of our cases, the timeline of our work, the history, some of the, re all, the all, all the research findings and reports, which are very important, they're all there. So people will find it interesting um, that, and you'll be able to see that, you know, that our work is very holistic. So we're not just doing one thing. We think that to create change, um, you need to take a holistic approach to the subject matter that you work in. Um, and it's not just about going to court, it's about conversations, it's about changing conversations um, and using data um, and research. And yeah, so I think people will find it interesting and see that what we do is, you know, we're, we're human rights lawyers, but actually we engage in things that aren't just going to court. Um, so I think, yeah, have a look at our website and then um, that will give you links to get in touch with us if people want to follow up and get more information about what we do um, or to have further conversations. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for, for being on, I guess, on the show and being so open with your own career path. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.